0: next level <laughs> how do you do mr carl Limley feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning we are about to unfold the story of frankenstein a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... uh, Well, we've warned you. Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Do you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying, you know, violently? And wonder, like, what would be the most horrible way to die? Well, hello, Mr. Fancy. Never get out of Never get I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. The following program may contain mature subject matter. Discretion is advised. Okay, kiddies. Uh, Quick, to the point. I'll make this short and sweet. And then on with the show. So, apparently, great thing in history. Oh my god! Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp! They went down. Who cares? Who honestly cares? Well, apparently a lot of people do. But they're telling you they don't. You know, going on their Facebook feeds when it came back. Oh, my life was so much better without you, Facebook. You just realize you just helped them make some money. Because each time you use Facebook, they generate revenue. And by you saying, I could live without you, Facebook, you're actually proving that you can't. Because you needed to get those likes and shares from your friends. And, you know, if it's on a Facebook page, oh, well, all your followers or whatever. The thing is, think it out. If your life was so much better without Facebook, why was it when it came back you had to be the first one to post about how you were able to live without it? It's defeating the purpose. That's all I have to say about that, honestly. Anything else that follows after that is just merely redundant. But, from the Next Level Network podcast ends Studio Zero. The podcast that knows how to repeat itself week after week after week. I welcome you back to What, what Works Behind, behind Podcast behind zero. zero. And I am your host, Postmortem Paul. And alright, so what's this week about? Well this week is the first week of October Ween, Or Shocktober. I didn't want to use that one because that is actually a thing. So I was thinking October Ween, But... I think that's a thing that's been used before, too. Uh, Whatever. It's October. It is the month of Halloween. All Hallows' Eve. Samhain. However you want to call it. Whatever you want to call it. It's uh, what the mainstream calls spooky season. Let's get our pumpkin spice and be spooky. And we'll watch horror movies. But we'll watch the safe ones because we can't handle martyrs. (laughs) Um, no. Uh yeah, it's, it's that time of the year, it's the best month of the year, kicked it off with my birthday, that part's not always that good, means I'm getting older, (sighs) I don't feel older though, I know everyone, I so don't fit the norm, because, you know, most people when they hit 25, they're like, I feel like I'm 80, Uh, no, you don't, (laughs) honestly, you don't know what 80 feels like, but, um, yeah i don't know there's there's days where yeah i do think i feel my age i feel the pains and you know the whole shit that back just tweaked a little too easily and stuff i mean it happens but i was feeling that at 19 as well it's not any different but then there's some days where seriously like i still am flexible like i was when i was 25 and it's kind of cool it, what was it? A couple of years ago during the Super Bowl. I know I'm talking sports again. Don't do that. Sports aren't cool. But no, Um. I remember what was it? It was the year that Jennifer Lopez, not that I care about her, but Jennifer Lopez was on there doing the halftime show. And, you know, they were pointing out that she was in her 60s. And then they showed like, it, this was all over the Internet. They were showing her in her 60s and then Betty White in her 60s and how it was, like, completely polar opposite and I don't know maybe it's a Gen X thing if I really want to label it but I find that like along with myself like many others of us in this age bracket we do not act or look our ages and I'm not saying that from a maturity standpoint but that we we have a younger mentality and a younger approach to life than say you know we all remember back in the 80s You thought of a 40-year-old, it was like, you're over the hill, you're so close to death, oh my god. And nowadays, it's like, that's what you think about, you know, 70-year-olds. You don't think about that for a 40- or 50-year-old, because 40- and 50-year-olds are still moving around quite normal. Like, they don't struggle. I mean, there are some people that struggle, but there's some people that struggle at three. I mean... (laughs) It's it's a person by person basis, I get that. But what I guess more or less what I'm saying is is when I was in my twenties, I was terrified of hitting forty because it was like, Oh my god, I'll be i I'll be so close to death and now I'm here at forty-six going and uh this isn't as scary as I thought it would be. So I guess that's my point. Anyways, it's Octoberween, if we want to call it that. So Another thing that was really cool about October 1st was that The Addams Family 2 was released to the theaters and on Peacock. Or if you can't have access to Peacock, I'm sure you'll find it somewhere. I was one of those people because Peacock is not offered in Canada. I could have got it on, on demand. But anyways, so released on the day of my birth, October 1st, what a better way to start off the greatest month of the year, right? With the Adamses. Um, so this movie, mo- most voice actors did return, except for Ben uh, who was he did, he did Pugsley in the first film. He couldn't this time around because his voice is getting older. He doesn't have that kid like voice anymore. So, uh, he was recast. What did I think about the movie? Well, I'll say it like this: uh, it's interesting. When it comes to Adam's family movies, whether it be the two live-action films, there are three, but we talk about two. Uh, when it comes to the two live-action films from the 90s, or these two animated films that we've gotten in you know, the late uh, 2010s or whatever, uh, into 2021, obviously. I have to say, I like the second one a bit better than the first. Not by much, but just a wee bit more. And that's the same with this one. As with Christina Ricci's Wednesday Addams, in this movie, Chloe Moret's Grace, uh, her Wednesday Addams, totally owns the film. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, it's it's interesting. It's I get they're, they're called the Addams Family movies, but sometimes I think they sh- seriously should just call them the Wednesday Addams Show because... They really do focus on that character, and they make her fucking awesome. This movie is definitely fun, albeit a little... It, I, I'll, I'll be honest. It's a slight disappointment, because in this one, they go on a family vacation, so they leave the Adams Manor. That bothers me. I, I liked them staying in that house, but I get it. It's a fun movie. It's colorful, with the Adamses bringing the gloom, um, which... That's the thing with this. First off, we have to remember this is still a kid's movie. So they're going to do some things that, you know, as an part of the older audience, I'm like, eh, all right, whatever. Like I didn't, there were a few moments, I will not lie, I actually did laugh out loud. But it's not a laugh out loud movie if you're an adult. If you're a kid, that's a different story. But the thing is, is that the what really hits home with this, this film is the fact of, like I said, Wednesday Adams totally the spirit animal of this work, and mainly because she pokes so much fun at the mindless mainstream, which I need to talk about the mainstream when it comes to this movie, because I really think I need to ask this question, and I know the mainstream doesn't listen to this podcast, but I'm gonna pose it that way, rhetorically almost. Can the just easily distracted and, you know, the, the easily manipulated mainstream of the world, the, the, the basic bitches, so to speak, can we stop commenting on films and works of art that they don't understand, that they don't get? Please and thank you. I watched this movie. I walked away from it going, wow, I enjoyed it. I thought it was better than the first one, by a wee bit, but still better. The mainstream, on the other hand, are acting like, oh my god, the goth subculture? It's only supposed to be black and miserable. There's too much color in this movie. It's not a gothy movie. Wait, hold on a minute. This movie wasn't goth enough for you because there were colors? Do you know anything about the goth subculture? I mean, they're not just, like, black doom and gloom, okay? There's a lot of the goth subculture that lives with color. Uh, <laughs> wait, what? Like, fucking hell, stop commenting, Okay. And here, let me let me refrain from throwing all the real insults out there that I could, you know, for all to be offended by, because offensiveness is. There's actually a joke about Wednesday Adams. Even cracks a joke about people easily being offended. It's it's fucking awesome. But seriously, Gen Pop needs to stop being so simple-minded. And I know that's harsh, right? That's... Because the thing is, is that's what this movie does, is it takes shots at simple-mindedness, it takes shot at shots at, um, like the, uh, the, for example, one of the things that's posed in the film is about, you know, they have this science fair, and there's five finalists, and at the end of the thing, when, when there's, at the end of the science fair, when they're supposed to announce who the winner is, they go, you're all winners, and Wednesday Adams is like, how can you, how can there be a winner with no losers? Like... You can't all win. But it's this whole all-inclusiveness and, oh my god, we have to, you know, make people feel good, even though, like, everyone gets a trophy, right? And it's that mentality, and this movie takes a shot at that, and it goes right over people's heads that it's satire. It's it's very quietly taking shots at the life we have been living in, you know, this the society we've been living in, and... It, it was uh, it was amazing to me that I was reading like articles and comments and everything where people were you know complaining about that for an adams family movie why is it so colorful well what do you know anything about the 60s TV show yes it was presented in black and white do you know what it was filmed in in a house that was pink <laughs> like come on color is something that still goes with the adams family I, okay I'm gonna th- just say this quickly and quietly because my one complaint is, and as as amusing as it is, it doesn't fit for me. Anyways, cousin it being done by Snoop Dogg, I love the fact that Snoop Dogg talks and then they play it backwards, and that's cousin it talking. That part's kind of clever. But then when Snoop Dogg busts out a rap at the end of the movie, I'm kind of like, mm. all right, what's with the thing with rap music in the Adams family? We did this with the '90s movies, you know, MC Hammer. Thank God Vanilla Ice didn't do one. But anyways, um, and now it's Snoop Dogg. But whatever, that's fine. I mean, Snoop Dogg is part of the Super Bowl halftime show coming up this year with Dr. Dre and Eminem. It's the year of the censors because how the hell are they doing a Super Bowl halftime without using all that colorful language? Oh, see, more color. Um, no, but um, the thing is, is I get this, right? It's a kid's movie. So they're going to do kid-like things. There's the music that I didn't really care for, but whatever. It's a kid's movie. But there is adult humor in there as well. The satire is alive and well. And, oh, one other thing. Stop comparing everything to the two fucking movies from the 90s. (sighs) Oh, Jesus Christ. So this movie, much like its predecessor, is a solid continuation to the adaptation of the comic strips created by Charles Adams from the fucking 1930s. On top of that, it pays homage to the TV series from the 60s, and there's other ones from 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, there was an animated cartoon series, actually. There's two of them, but they both look the same, and that's where this look comes from. Well, actually, no, it really comes from the comic strips. There is elements of this that are in homage to the 90s films, but I do not understand what is our fucking obsession with comparing everything to those two fucking movies and acting like the rest of the legacy of the Adams Family never fucking existed. Ugh. Basic comic fo- common folk. You know, seriously, they like to get their spooky on during October ween so we can sexy up the killers and cleavage up the boogeymen. And, oh, let's get our jiggy on or jiggy down or whatever with the creepy creep folks. And they love those Adams Family movies because they were so cool. And Christina Ricci is the greatest thing in the world. But my God, like, seriously. I know, I just... I have to actually talk like a basic to try and reiterate my point out there. There is a legacy of the Adams family that started in the 1930s, 1938 to be exact. Okay, please understand not everything is revolving around two fucking movies. And yes, there can be color and yes, it can be fun. For me, personally, you know how I felt about this movie? I felt it was like a a 7.5 out of a 10. Like, I really enjoyed it. Again, like I said, didn't laugh out loud for everything. It's a kid's movie, I get that. But, it has some cool little meanings in it. And, I don't know. It's making me sound whiny. And I need to stop. Because, wow, I... Yeah, and that's the thing, too. Is I mean, this is a good movie. I should be happy about it and... I I see these these comments online. I read articles where people were complaining, but I'm like, is this seriously the world we live in today? Like, remember I, I just recently I talked about Nightbooks, another kid's movie that was a gateway to horror and grown-ass 50, 50-year-old men complaining about how this movie did nothing for them. It's like it wasn't your target audience, asshole. Let's move on to the trailer timeout of a classic, a classic universal horror flick, a great one, a legend that has a legacy that is well over 100 years old, not the movie, the movie's not, the movie's been around for 90 years, but the legacy of this character has been for a long time, a wonderful time, Yes, so I did say I was going to be doing, for the month of October, Universal Studio Monster Movies. I've already done, on the podcast, I've done The Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula. It feels only right that I should start with this one. For episode 105. In the month of October... We have to do this one. And, and, and like I said, I got, I got three more lined up after this. But this one has to be the beginning. The starting point. Because he's probably... If not the most iconic... The second most iconic monster to come out of Universal Studios. Out of literature. Out of lore. I mean... This face, the face that goes with this character, is so popular that even people who have never seen the movie, never read the book, have absolutely no clue about this story whatsoever. The face of the monster is that well known. We're going to do the trailer timeout and when we come back, episode 105 is going to deep dive, dive deep. Into one of the greatest movies of all time, 1931's Frankenstein. And I promise you, I'm not going to rant and pitch as much as I have for this opening segment. Back in a splat, kids. <laughs> It's alive. it's alive it's alive it's alive when this dead hand moves the monster created by a man they called mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! It's a line, I love how that line you know interesting how, like before the trailer, I said how the face is iconic of the monster. It's interesting how that line is iconic as well. It's kind of like the the whole psycho thing, you know people that have never seen psycho, they still know the <coughs> thing like you know, like the stabbing motion and whatnot, and it's interesting how, like with Frankenstein, it's like. People that have never seen the movie still know the whole it's alive thing. It's kinda cool. Anyways let's stay on topic this time around, instead of always talking about something random after the trailer. Frankenstein was released to the world. Mark the date, folks. It was a historical day. It was released November twenty first, nineteen thirty-one. Here's the cool thing, kinda locally for this windsor kid there was an early preview release two days before on november 19th 1931 in detroit michigan right across the pond well, river whatever body of water um but yeah so which was interesting though because in canada the movie was released january 6th 1932 a couple months later. So, it's kind of funny that that little strip of water called Detroit River. Yeah, on one side of it, the movie was released two days before the actual wide release. And on the other side of it, it was released two months later. So, it's a month and a half later, whatever. But, yeah, interesting. The film, Frankenstein, was directed by James Whale. James Whale was responsible for other movies... Like the old dark house, the Invisible Man, The Bride of Frankenstein, Green Hell, and Showboat. Showboat, I believe, if I remember correctly, was his final film that he directed. Uh, and so sad note about James Whale. I've, okay, I've talked about him before on this show, but that was quite a while back, Bride of Frankenstein. So to be fair, I don't remember everything I talked about in that last episode. So if I repeat anything, I apologize, but James Whale apparently did commit suicide at the age of 67 by drowning, and the funny thing, well not funny, poor choice of words Paul, (laughs) but he left a suicide note, but it was kept from the public, so for the longest time his death was ruled as accidental. But his longtime companion David Lewis, um, the reason the reason why it was ruled accidental was because he kept the note secret, and then when the note came out, um, you know they obviously changed the ruling on his death. But yeah, he committed suicide. The producer for this film, I have to make an apology for, uh, not on his behalf but on mine, because. <laughs> The several times I've mentioned this person's name on this show, I have pronounced it wrong each and every time. I have always called him Carl Lemmel Jr. That is not how his name is pronounced. His name is pronounced Lemley. And I only realized it when watching a documentary on this movie, like The Making Of and all that sort of stuff. It was a historical film on, you know, the iconic importance of Frankenstein. And somebody mentioned the name and I'm like, you dumb fuck, meaning myself, (laughs) for all this time that I've called him Carl Lemmel Jr. And it's Carl Lemley Jr. So for all of you who probably have freaked out listening to me talk on this show before and saying his name wrong, yes, I have said it wrong many, many times. Now, Carl Lemley Jr. I know I've talked about on this show before, but I'll talk about him again on to produce 160 films including dracula both the english and spanish versions uh frankenstein obviously Mur- murders in the rue morgue the old dark house the mummy laughter in hell the invisible man black cat bride of frankenstein and showboat which uh my correction was not james Whale's final film it was carl Lemmel- lemley jr's see even now i almost called him carl lemel jr i don't know why i do that but Yes! Carl Lemley Jr. For all the times I've said it wrong, I'm saying it right now. And it was Showboat. That was his last film, not James Will's. This film has several writers, if you look at it from a certain point of view. Okay, so the the screenplay itself was written by Garrett Fort and Francis Edward Farago, based on a composition by John L. Balderston, who in turn, his composition was based on the play by Peggy Webbling. All of this, though, is inspired by the ever-immortal classic, beloved novel by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Some people have referred to her as Mrs. Percy Shelley. I don't like doing that because she has her own name. She's not uh, a possession of her husband's, okay? I understand sometimes we do this. I don't like doing that. She is Mary Shelley. She is she she is her own being. Um, there's all there's always been rumblings about whether or not this story was hers, her husband's, or a a conjoined, you know, thing. Um, I, I I will credit her as the writer for this. Um, the novel Frankenstein was also known by another name. Uh, known as the Modern Prometheus. I will explain more on that later, why I brought that up, but the book did come out in 1818. There was many revisions and different editions, um, which is why sometimes there's this confusion as to why, as to where the origins of the story came from. Did it come from Mary? Did it come from her husband, Percy? Uh, because he did editings on some of the later editions that would come out. There was a release, well, the original book was 1818, and then there was an 1823 uh, revision, an 1831 revision. They were edited by her husband. So, uh, to be fair, let's be honest. The only There's only two people in the world that would have known who actually wrote this story and who was to bring brains behind it, and that's Mary and Percy, and we'll leave it at that. Uh, because there's all these theologists and historians that constantly have their different arguments and rumblings about it. We don't know. They know. Cinematography for the film was by Arthur Edison and Paul Ivano, although Paul Ivano was uncredited, so it's mainly an Arthur Edison film. He also worked on films like The Old Dark House and The Invisible Man. The music? Uncredited to Bernhard Kaum. And the reason why, at least what I'm assuming, why it was all uncredited is because basically the only areas in this film where music exists is the opening and closing credits. And there's a scene in the movie where there's like some like German band playing. But other than that, there's no music in this movie. Um, If I remember correctly, the, the first film to actually have a score was The Bride of Frankenstein. This one is the same as Dracula. There was no score. Um, So he wasn't actually credited. Uh, There's actually... um, Some of the cast were uncredited as well. They had a thing back in the day. They didn't credit every single person that showed up in this film. So as I'm moving on to the starring cast, one of them that I'll be talking about actually wasn't credited in the film. That being said, here is our starring cast. We will start with the doctor himself, Colin Clive, as Henry Frankenstein. And yes, in the book, his name is Victor, but in here, his name is Henry. And Colin only had 18 acting credits, but he did return for the sequel of The Bride of Frankenstein. Which I probably mentioned that when I reviewed The Bride of Frankenstein, but like I said, (laughs) it's been a while since I did that one, and I don't remember everything I said on it. So, that's that. Moving on next to May Clark May Clark as Elizabeth Lavenza. I believe I don't even know if they actually mention her surname in the film, but I know that we know her as Elizabeth. She uh, worked on another James Whale film as a matter of fact, I believe it's the one they met on called Waterloo Bridge and here's a kind of cool thing so tying this all within her legends of, you know, Universal Studio Monsters and Hammer Films and all that sort of cool stuff. She had a small role in the 1966 Batman series. And you're like, well, what's that got to do with Batman? And what's that got to do with horror? Well, listen, hold up. The episode she was in was The Yegg Foes in Gotham that starred as the villain Vincent Price as Egghead. I love the synopsis for that episode, by the way, it was like when the lease payment for Gotham city, all right, (laughs) fails to be made on time, possession of the city falls into the hands of egghead. Like who thought that up? Like all of a sudden we didn't pay the lease on the city. So we have to hand it off to this Vincent price character. And then he's going to run amok. And he apparently he, he fires commissioner Gordon and bans Batman and Robin from the city. And, That was actually an episode, and people loved it. That's how hammy Batman was in the 60s, and we loved it for it. All this, my God, everybody's still freaking, this movie hasn't even come out yet, and people are still freaking out about Robert Pattinson as Batman. It's like, slow your fucking roll, my God. Egghead once owned Gotham City for crying out loud, okay? Like, come on. People get so hyper about shit says the guy getting hyper about people getting hyper. I know it, I'm well aware of my state of mind. Okay. Anyways, getting back to May Clark, she was in that episode. Um, she's actually just credited as a lady. As a matter of fact, I believe she was the final credit in the credits because it's a very small role, but she was in it. Um, moving on to John Bowles as Victor Moritz, uh, in this film, uh, he had 57 acting credits, but this was his only role in horror. Or, Well, they call this a science fiction horror film, which I kind of understand that. Um, but he, John was known for doing a lot of stage and film work, and he did a lot of musicals. He was in several musicals. So that's that. Okay, so do I do this? I'm skipping one. I'm going to move next. I'm going in the order that they put it at the end of the film. and in the. Be- Actually, this is one of those films where they had the starring cast at both the beginning and the end, but um, I'm skipping one. I'm going to move on, and then I'll come back to one character. We'll move on to Baron Frankenstein, who was played by Frederick Kerr. Uh, 19 acting credits, and he also was in the film Waterloo Bridge, which I believe that's also where he met James Whale. Uh, Dwight Frye as... Fritz. No, I'm sorry. It's Renfield as uh Fritz. Um yeah, I I know. I, and don't get me wrong, Dwight Fry is great in this movie, but I think his Renfield is probably my favorite characterization that he's ever done. I mean, rats. Rats. Like I fucking love that. But he's good in this too. He's definitely solid. Um but yeah, Dwight Fry as fritz lionel belmore as air Bogle. i think i'm saying that right he was the burger master and he has 184 acting credits dating back as far as 1914 so yeah i mean he was doing silent films and everything he was also in the vampire bat son of frankenstein the ghost of frankenstein and the hunchback of notre dame from 1939 yeah he was like I said, 184 acting credits. I wasn't listing them all, but those, those were kind of the movies that st- stood out to me, and I was like, oh, i got to talk about those. Um, Marilyn Harris as Little Maria. Um, in real life, she was an adopted child, and she was only 10 years old when she was in this movie. And on top of that, only 20 acting credits. She didn't last long in the field of acting. However, she was in The Bride of Frankenstein, and she was in the showboat musical that James Whale and Carl Emley Jr. were responsible for. Which I might go on to say, like, that's that's one of the films that's pretty much considered, like, the epitome of... Like, it, it's like the iconic version of, you know, it's, it's the one everyone refers to kind of thing, so... Um... So it's kind of cool. It's a little backstory to Marilyn Harris. So we all know the famous scene. Those of us that have seen this movie, we've, we know the famous scene. Frankenstein playing with the little girl, picks her up, throws her in the water, and she drowns. We don't actually see her drown. We don't see her die or anything, but I mean, it's implied, right? Anyways, they had to take that film or that, that shot several times. And... They knew they needed, she had done it several times, they knew they needed to do it one more take. So, (laughs) James Whale had to sort of, like, make a deal with Marilyn. Because, I mean, honestly, you're a kid who wants to keep getting thrown in the fucking water. You know, I mean, I'm sure it was probably annoying. So, anyways, here's the cool thing about this. He had to make a deal with her, so he, he promised her that if she did it one last time, she could have anything she wanted. Her favorite snack, whatever she wanted and she asked for one dozen hard-boiled eggs. I know, it sounds weird. He gave her two. He gave her two dozen eggs. The reason why, though, is because, as I said, she was an adopted child. Her adoptive parents, well, I guess her mother, as so the stories say, anyways, I wouldn't know. I wasn't there. Um, <laughs> but, apparently, they were very strict about what she ate and stuff like that. So, that was kind of her, like, She loved eating hard-boiled eggs, so because he had that power, he could make her favorite snack come true. That's what she asked for. She asked for one dozen, he gave her two. That's kind of cool. Let's see. Michael Mark as Ludwig. uh, 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 (laughs) He's Maria's father. Uh, Like I said, uncredited whenever they would do the opening credits to these older films, it's usually like the first five or ten, kind of like I do on the show. I never tell you all the credits. I just give you like the main ones. Well, that's what they did back then. His character is kind of important because he is the one who finds his daughter and then brings her daughter to the, his daughter to the town square. And that's what starts the whole mob mentality of we must kill the monster kind of thing. But for whatever reason, he wasn't credited. The funny thing about that is, is for a man, and he, I noticed he was often uncredited. He has 153 acting credits to his name, which included other films like Laughter in Hell, The Black Cat, Son of Frankenstein, The Mummy's Hand, The Ghost of Frankenstein, House of Frankenstein, Phantom from Space, Attack of the Puppet People, The Wasp Woman, and Return of the Fly. And many of those, he was uncredited. That's a shame. But... Like I said, especially in the earlier films, I I don't even know when it started. That's something I'm probably going to look into when we started actually crediting the full cast. But even at that, there's films today where there's certain people who are uncredited in films. Alright, so let's go back to the one that I skipped. The monster. The Frankenstein monster. The one who is usually credited as being Frankenstein. No, he's a Frankenstein's monster. I do like that picture that floats around on social media that's like at the end of the Frankenstein book and Frankenstein has accepted that it's okay to call him Frankenstein, um, you know, the monster, whatever. So how do I do this? Okay, so the monster is played by question mark. Oh, ah, and you're like, wait, what? But yes, if you watch this movie, during the opening credits, when they're crediting star the starring cast, it says the monster played by question mark. We all know it's Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff is credited at the closing credits of the movie. It's kind of cool. I like it. They're, they were creative. They had fun with their credits. I'll give them that. But before James Whale was brought in to direct this film, originally it was to be Robert Florey who would direct it. And for his Frankenstein film, Bela Lugosi was actually the original cast, casted actor to play the monster. Which after several makeup tests, uh, he actually kind of quit. Might have been released, never really know, because it's kind of foggy, fuzzy as to what happened here. But, they did his makeup tests... He looked more like the Golem... From the film The Golem... Uh, you know the same name whatever... Um, the thing is is that Robert Flory's version... The original script... Had the monster being more of a killing machine... Uh, there was no element of emotion... Or pathos to the character... Uh, and Lugosi was not impressed with this iteration... So supposedly he said... I quit and you walked out... The thing is, is that Robert Flory was dismissed from the film... And rumor has it Bella was going to go with them anyways. They were going to, the studio would have removed him regardless because James will, you know, showed an interest in this film. They didn't want to go with Robert Flory's version. So they bring in James will. And hence the era of the Boris Karloff Frankenstein monster was given the light of day. And for all of you who think, Oh, You know, if if by 30 I haven't completed everything in life, uh, I'll be a nothing. Uh, I'd like to point out that Boris Karloff was 44 years old when he starred as the monster. That's pretty much where most people know his career started. Now, we know that he acted before this. He did stage acting. He did other films and whatnot. But a lot of people, they look at Frankenstein as being the starting point of Boris Karloff's career. Well, if that's the case, he was 44 years old. So never give up on your dreams, kids, because you know what? It can happen at any time. I'm at 46 saying, will I ever get it right? But who knows? Anyways, <laughs> Boris Karloff has 205 acting credits to his name. I'm about to name quite a few of them, but I'm not going to go through all 205. But he was in other films like The Mummy, The Black Cat, Black Friday, The Old Dark House, The Ghoul, The Bride of Frankenstein. The Raven, Son of Frankenstein, House of Frankenstein, but not as the monster in that one. Uh, I believe that one was Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, He was in Dick Tracy meets Gruesome. He was in the movie The Black Castle. Some of the Abbott and Costello films, etc., etc., etc. Boris Karloff was the Grinch in The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, and I believe the other Grinch films as well. You know, cartoons as well, but... He's our Grinch, for crying out loud. I mean, Boris Karloff is awesome. Oh, shit. I forgot one. No, I didn't. I actually left him for last because he also was the opening of this, this episode, this podcast. You heard the little uh, monologue at the beginning. Edward Van Sloan as Dr. Waldman, uh, who was also Van Helsing in Dracula and Dracula's Daughter was also in The Mummy, The Phantom Creeps, and Behind the Mask. I've talked about him just recently on Dracula, so it was like, eh, I'll throw him in there for fun. But yeah. Actually, it's because of my when I look at my notes, I kind of fucked up, <laughs> wrote my notes out, and he got kind of mixed in with Boris Karloff's credits. See? I'm okay with admitting my errors, okay? Like, I fucked up. My bad. Sorry. The runtime for the film is an hour and ten minutes long. No actual rating, as this movie was pre-code. The budget was 262000 Box office gross, when it was all said and done after the re-releases and whatnot, was close to $12 million. Synopsis for the film... Do I have to do it, really? Like, I mean, we do know the story of Frankenstein, right? I'll do it anyways. The iconic horror film, that followed the obsessed scientist Dr. Henry Frankenstein as he attempted to create life by assembling a creature from body parts of the deceased. Aided by his loyal, misshapen assistant Fritz, Frankenstein succeeds in animating his monster. But, confused and traumatized, it escapes into the countryside and begins to wreak havoc. Frankenstein searches for the elusive being and eventually must confront his tormented creation for this next segment I'm calling it one of the greatest lines out of this movie now I know what it feels like to be a god such a wonderful line right not everyone got the chance to hear it though well at least not in what 1932 till about 1980 ah but god it sets the tone for this movie i mean the whole idea of man overstepping his boundaries in attempting to create life the failure of humankind i mean well and and let's be honest like the failure of humankind What, what is the failure of humankind it's it's always within their own arrogance right it's it's the need to be right the need to be important to see themselves as the controller the 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 control freak syndrome right we have to control everything we have to control what you think control how you act control everything it and this is truly the failure of human humankind it's the failure of a decent society because there's always got to be someone telling someone else what the fuck to do right and that's the thing this movie kind of Hints at that, but it, it, it's it's more the idea of playing God in this film, right? And the funny thing about the line now, I know what it feels like to be a God or to be God. Funny thing about that line was it was the when the movie first came out, 1931, it was left in there, and then the censors were like, "Ah, ah, ah, no, no way!" because they saw this that line as as being. Offensive. It was sacrilegious. It was blasphemous. It, it, it. Critics hated that line. They wanted it out of there, and it's funny because you know, in today's day, you watch this movie and it's like, well, okay, it's, is a good story. It's a great story. You know, it's a good movie. Great movie. But. We hear a line like that, and it's not really that offensive in 2021. However, in 1931, holy shit, you know, people lost their minds over that line. It was like, that needs to come out of the movie. So when the movie was re-released, it was banned from the movie. They had to take it out. There there was an edit. Um, and like I said, that was all the way up until the 1980s. That line never showed up, never was restored into the film until, like, early 1980s the movie itself was banned in this in kansas the state of kansas ba- banned the movie completely they were like uh-uh no way uh there's no way audiences can handle this and i mean it, it to be fair it wasn't the only place that it was banned it was also banned in ireland it was banned in china like i mean and like i said to look back you, if you watch this movie today, it's very tame. The themes are very strong, but the overall horror and the offensiveness of the film is very tame. Compared to, you know... I joke about the movie Martyrs because, because so many people that I recommended that movie to are like, God, that movie was harsh. I've seen worse, but I'm sa- but that's the thing. We've seen worse. This movie... I mean, it It was banned. It's like, wow. And, I mean, as for the line itself, I, I know I keep going back to this, but there's an interesting fact about this line. So the restoration of the line eventually did come into play and it's been put back into the movie and whatnot. What's really cool about it is, though, like, when they first started reinserting the line back in the film, it, it, they had a hard time finding uh, a clean version of it, you know? And then eventually, what's called a Vitaphone disc was found. Uh, The best way to explain it's like a giant vinyl record. And it was discovered and it had the line clear as day. It sounded perfectly exactly how it should in the movie. So they're able to restore it back into the film. And the version that we have today, the version that many people are seeing in 2021, it sounds perfect. You can't tell there was an edit there. What's really cool about this, so I'll explain a Vitaphone disc to you, is that back in like the earlier days of cinema, like we're used to watching a film, the audio is attached to the film. Well, back then, that's not how it worked. The film was one thing. It was the moving pictures on the screen. The sound came from somewhere else, and it came from these Vitaphone discs that they synchronized with the film. I don't know how they did that, because I wasn't around at that time. I assume there must be a certain starting point or a signal or something to let them know when to drop the needle. I'm not sure that's even how that worked, but, (laughs) but what I'm saying is it was kind of cool because the sound for those movies back in the day came from a separate source. As time went on, when we, as film became more advanced and technologies, you know, were more advanced, the sound was then added to the actual film strip. But back in 1931, it was a separate entity all itself so here you have this, this disc or this vinyl record so to speak that has the sound and the film is showing the visuals and it's kind of cool um, and, and now getting to the movie so as I wrote in my notes I wrote is this movie scary today and my answer is actually no but yes because okay the movie itself On a narrative level or special effects level or, you know, suspense, tension and whatnot, honestly not considered scary anymore. It's the world we live in today has really watered down that effect. Thematically, though, the movie is timeless, and this is why this movie is revered as one of the greatest movies of all time, Um, not just within the horror genre, but within cinema in general because look at some of the the themes like innocence the innocence of the monster the innocence of the child um mob mentality this is something that is it's timeless we we still have mob mentality to this very day you know mob mentality of the general public Uh, Jumping to conclusions, which leads to hastily and ignorantly made decisions. Whoa, hey, that sounds familiar. What's the last two fucking years been like? Um, the, The idea of the aesthetically ugly being deemed the outcast, the bad guy, you know, the one to fear. And then, as I said, stated earlier, like, the whole idea of man wanting to play the role of God, this is still going on to this very day. Like, thematically, there's a lot of themes, there's a lot of um, ideas presented in this movie that 90 years later, we still haven't learned a damn thing about, you know, and... That's interesting. Now, I'm going to kind of hint up on Mary Shelley's novel, which she also, she called it the modern Prometheus. Frankenstein was the name that it's famously known as, but she also named it the modern Prometheus. The Greek stories of Prometheus, Prometheus the god, show that he was the god, he was seen as a symbol of humanity progressing against the forces of nature. Prometheus granted humanity with the gifts of fire and hope. Now think about that for a moment because hope gives humans this belief system in which they must struggle for a better future, right? And the fire was sort of like a symbolization of technology or a tool to help attain the success within that struggle, right? So in tying that back to this film, let's say, you know, and you look at Dr. Frankenstein, his hopes to succeed at creating life through the tools of science. We... In this very day, are living, trying to f- struggle to find a better future using science. Again, thematically, this movie is that timeless. That ninety years later, it's still as relevant as it was in nineteen thirty-one, as it was in eighteen thirty-one. Um, that that's very important to remember. It, it explains why this film is so iconic. The monster itself is is the. Okay, so the he's the famous face. Okay, when you think Frankenstein, the first thing that pops into your head is not the evil scientist. It's not the story of man creating life or anything. When you think Frankenstein, the first thing that pops into your head is that face, the face of Boris Karloff. But the story is anything but focused on that monster. Really, honestly, when you if you really look at this movie... The monster is one is like one of the the smaller points of the film. This is about Doctor Henry Frankenstein, which yes, I mentioned his name was changed to Henry from Victor. In the book, it's Victor Frankenstein. Here's a funny thing about this. I mean, you talk about censors, right? They changed the name from Victor to Henry because apparently the studio thought that Victor sounded like a menacing name. It was an evil name, so. So they changed it because they didn't think the American public would be able to handle the name of Victor Frankenstein. Okie doke. Whatever you say. (laughs) Colin Clive, I got to say, is perfect in the role of Henry Frankenstein. And I love the dichotomy of this character. I love the the contrast. He's such a Jekyll and Hyde in this movie because he's got that gentle face, a man of passion, a man of drive, um, you know, the 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 husband to Elizabeth and whatnot. He's he's just he looks like such an average gentleman. And at the same time he's a man on this mission. This devious mission, which he doesn't see as devious. He's almost like a Tony Stark. Everything, I know I'm going to Marvel because I'm going to make it more relevant more modern, right? Okay, so Tony Stark in these Marvel movies, his intentions were always good, but it just, it fucked up and it always turned out wrong. Hence Ultron, hence, you know, so much that goes on in those Marvel movies. But Frankenstein was sort of the same idea. His intentions were good. He He just wanted to make society a better thing. He wanted to defeat death you know because what's what's one of the most biggest human flaws is our fear of dying the fear of death right he wanted to he wanted to create immortality or he wanted to create life he might have meant well but he just it he came off as being completely mad in character and it worked hence the whole idea of the mad scientist Again, as the face of the monster is iconic, so is the whole idea of the mad scientist. You know, and that's something that, that has gone through the last 90 years. You know, we still have the mad scientist. Dr. Finkel- Finkelstein in Nightmare Before Christmas, the evil scientist. Uh, there was the musical artist, Dr. Steele, for those of you who remember that. Um, because it was kind of recent, I mean, what, 2007 or whatever? He was doing it on the internet, and he had his own little, you know, mini shows on YouTube and whatnot, and then a couple of musical albums and shit. Again, the mad scientist look, right? Like, so Colin Clive is kind of where that all started, visually anyways. I mean, obviously it was in the book before, but, and then, okay, so I'll talk quickly about Dwight Frye, yes. I call him Renfield, he's kind of the Igor of the film, even though he doesn't go by the name Igor, he goes by the name of Fritz, Um, I always felt he was a bit underused in this movie, to be fair, I think that's why Renfield ended up being probably my favorite character that he's ever done, but I mean, that being said, his moment, his moment of stealing the abnormal brain over the normal brain is kind of the catalyst that sets this whole thing on fire, right? I mean, so to speak because we know later on there's a big fire in this movie um but yeah like without dwight fry's character without him you know going into the laboratory to steal you know the the the, he's supposed to get the normal brain he gets the abnormal brain which is you know what causes frankenstein to be what frankenstein ends up being i mean without that moment this movie doesn't have It's catapult forward, right? And I mean, the thing is, is that this film, 70-minute film, right? So, I mean, it wastes no time in hitting some of the darker aspects. This is a film that was considered very dark in 1931, let alone if you honestly think about it. It's pretty dark even now. I mean, you have grave robbing scenes. You have a man hanging from a gallows. You know, like that, that was considered extremely dark. Not to mention a little girl being thrown in the water. That's, I mean, that's considered pretty dark. Um, The human skeleton that Fritz bumps into. Which, so, trivia fact on that, that was an actual human skeleton. That was no fake skeleton. Um, Because, apparently, the creative team felt it would have cost more to have a fake skeleton built, or created, so they just... Borrowed one from a a biology school or something like that. I forget the exact location where it came from, but it was a real human skeleton that he bumps into. So that rest in peace (laughs) to that person. But your skeleton came in handy. Um, and you got to look at this too. We live in an era of excess. We really do. Uh, everything is show and tell, you know, um, Directors feel that we need to see everything, you know, this movie, this movie in if it was released today would come off as hokey. But in 1931, it was anything but that um, for the Kansas I mentioned that it was it was banned in Kansas. Kansas did eventually release it. However, 32 cuts had to be made to the film. How long was this movie when they released it in Kansas? Uh, I have no clue. I'm going to say it probably was less than an hour long because that's a lot of cuts, but it was because this movie was considered dark. I mentioned the movie was banned in China and Ireland as well. Now, Ireland, however, uh, it did see a release in 1932 uh, because they had an appeals board that the movie was brought to and eventually it was allowed to be released and I believe it was released uncut. But initially, when the movie was being released worldwide, Ireland was one of those that said no-no. Let's move on to aesthetics. Aesthetics of the film. Let's stop looking at all the... Oh, censors this, censors that. The famous look of the laboratory. the, The electrical gadgets, the apparatus, the sound effects, all of that stuff were designed by a man by the name of Kenneth Strickfate. Those effects and the looks of all those gadgets were considered a huge success for the film and eventually became an essential part of many of the films. Uh, most of them, the sequels to the Frankenstein legacy. We'll call it that. Um But I mean, we've seen this look in other films as well. And I mentioned nightmare before Christmas, the, the laboratory that Dr. Finkelstein works in looks very similar to this. It it was an aesthetic that was created and it lasted and it's still lasting to this very day. Um, Now kind of a trivia fact about strick is as well as creating those wonderful toys, I quote the Joker from 1989 Batman, where does he get those wonderful toys? But anyways, (laughs) as well as creating that, whole laboratory look and everything. Strykfade, and also was the double for um, Boris Karloff in the creation scenes. And so it's interesting why that happened because Boris Karloff was kind of rattled by... Okay, so when they're doing the creation and, you know, the there's all the electrical gadgets going off. There's sparks and there's jolts. There's electricity all around and stuff. Anyways... Boris Karloff was apparently really uh, anxious about that. He had an anxiety. It, I don't want to say an anxiety attack, but he was very nervous about the whole thing. Now, through rumors and stories and whatnot, I, I can't confirm any of this, but apparently, Boris Karloff and James Whale might not have been the best of friends. Whale was jealous of Karloff and the fact that his monster was being seen as. I don't I don't know how this works, but apparently the stories are that he was jealous of the fact that Boris Karloff's monster was getting more hype than the doctor and the story and all this other stuff, which I don't understand unless they were promoting Boris Karloff's look before the movie came out. I, I, I again, like I said, it's very fuzzy, but anyways, they had a rift. So Whale would have Karloff um do like things that made him nervous or that would hurt him to get even. Apparently whale being a dick, apparently whatever. Um, So along with creating the look of the laboratory, Kenneth decided, okay, I will help out Boris. I'll take off some of that anxiety and I'll do the scenes of the creation because there were parts of skin that were showing like the, the gut area and whatnot and he was like all right so if any of the electrical shocks or the sparks or anything fly on me it won't freak me out like it does um boris karloff now karloff still got tortured basically by james whale because the scene where he has to um carry colin clive on his back uh when they're going up the the stairwell there and whatnot and i mean it, you gotta this is kind of cool like i mean like colin clive you know said hey look why don't you use a dummy but James Whale apparently wanting to be a dick to Karloff said no he will carry you which led to Karloff having back problems apparently this was all behind the scenes now I don't know the validity of it because I mean I'm going based on things that I'm just reading but um, yeah apparently they didn't get along I, I don't really know um, the monster itself though Let's talk about this, okay? So, yes, I've said most one of the most well-known faces in any of uh, pop culture, and it has been like that for the past ninety years. And I say this because it has influenced everything from Hammer films to Blackenstein, Young Frankenstein, Frankenberry cereal, which originated in 1971. I might add uh, to 1985's. Weird Science, the whole idea of recreation, and I mean it's influenced the Rocky Horror Picture Show, it's influenced the Monster Squad, Frank and Hooker, Frank and Weenie, Frank and Pooh from The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Scooby-Doo and the Ghoul School with Elsa Frankentine, The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror, Frankenstein Drag Queens from Planet 13, the Edgar Winter Group song, Frankenstein. DC Comics brought Frankenstein to Superman Comics and Bizarro Meets Frankenstein. Video games, toys, spoops, remakes. Even Guillermo del Toro at one point was attached to a possible remake. Frankenstein is just that big, and I just barely grazed the surface. This movie helped get it all there. This is how iconic Frankenstein is. I'd even go as far as to say that probably, I think, in my opinion, Frankenstein is possibly even more popular than Dracula. And that's saying a lot because Dracula's pretty fucking famous. And then you have James Will, Boris Karloff, Mae Clark, Colin Clive, Mary Shelley. You name any of those five names, and what's the first thing that people think of? Frankenstein. Some people think the Grinch for Boris Karloff, but most people go to Frankenstein. The idea and the character of Frankenstein, or more so the Frankenstein's monster, has always crossed the minds of many, whenever those five names are mentioned. I'd kind of throw Dwight Fry in there as well, but let's be fair, his Renfield is the standout performance. But yes, Igor. The whole idea of Igor, the, the hunchback assistant and whatnot, comes with the idea of Frankenstein. This movie is 100% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that I ever care what Rotten Tomatoes thinks, but it's 100% certified fresh. The movie is heavily lauded as one of the best films of 1931 and one of the greatest films of all times by many critics. There are a few, though, <clears throat> critics out there who would probably slag on this film to make their name sound more important and I'm looking at you New Yorker specifically John Mosher uh, who said and I love this quote the makeup department has a triumph to its credit in the monster and there lie the thrills of the picture but the general fantasy lacks the vitality which that little Miss P.B. Shelley was able to give her book first off here we go with that Mrs. Percy Shelley shit um Fuck you. Her name is Mary. Secondly, the general fantasy lacks vitality. Um, did you miss all the themes that were going on in this film? As much as there's a fantasy element, a sci-fi element to this movie, it's pointing right at real life. And that's what, that's what makes this, this whole thing immortal. It's what makes it great. Um, but I mean, in terms of, Critics who will try to slag on this film, I guess it's just that. You know what I mean? Like, some are going to overlook the dar- darker aspects of the movie because it's not in their face with gore or theatrical awe-striking moments. Um, you know, and like I've said, as with the generations passing on, we became more and more in excess and extremity. So we look at Frankenstein as being a kid's movie. That being said, 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb. That's pretty nice. I like that. 91% approval rating on Metacritic. This movie ranks number 56 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills list, um, which was a list of America's most heart-pounding movies. Uh, ranked number 27th on, or number 27 on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. The Chicago Film Critics Association named it its 14th scariest film ever made. I like that people, you know, are realizing that not everything had to be visually in our face. You know, sometimes it's the darker elements, it's just I mean, th- that's the thing though. There are some visuals that are pretty striking in this movie, but it's the themes that made it immortal. Podcast zero rating, I basically hit up on all of that already. Thematically, aesthetically, narr- narratively, This movie is a legend for me. This is one of those I saw at a very, very young age. Much like Dracula and Night of the Living Dead. And it stuck with me. And it's been a constant in my collection for the past three decades. Um, Whether it's been VHS, DVD, um, digital. I don't have Blu-ray yet. But this is one I would probably put in the Blu-ray collection. But again... My older films, I kinda like them to have that grainy look just because I feel it gives it a full feeling to it, my personal opinion. Um I will say Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula are definitely my two favorites of all the Universal Monster movies, but this one definitely shines a very bright light for me. Karloff is a gem, but it's it's really it's Colin Clive's movie. He owns this thing. Kinda like I said earlier with the Adams Family and Wednesday Adams. As much as Karloff is the face of the movie, it's Colin Clive's performance as Dr. Henry Frankenstein that just owns it for me. And like I said, with the Addams Family, it was Wednesday Addams that owned it Both in both movies, whether it be the live action or this recent animated one. I have to say this. I'd be nuts. I'd be mad to rank this any lower than a 9. And in fact, I myself, personally, I gave it 9.5 bolts of lightning out of 10. Um, this... Because... It, and the only reason why I knock off a .5 off of it is because Bride, for me, Bride of Frankenstein is the ultimate movie um, in terms of the monster movies and whatnot. So... That's the 10. This is the 9.5. But, I mean, without this one, that sequel never happens, right? So I have to... I have to give this movie that much credit. It's a a 9.5 out of 10. If I really want to be honest, it's a 10. It's a fucking masterpiece. Okay, that's what this movie is. The monster is loose, and he will never die. He's survived 90 years since this movie was released, and it will go another 90 and another 90 after that, provided we don't kill this planet first. But (laughs) that being said, like, I mean it's just it's that iconic it's that immortal and that's the thing with this movie that probably any if you're to describe it in one word the best word would be immortal which is what Dracula was supposed to be and he is but this is a timeless movie and on that note because I've rambled so much we're gonna end this by saying thank you for listening Thank you for returning to the show, as you, many of you have been, and I'm, I'm really loving that. And thank you. And if you are one of the new listeners, thank you for joining on, on board. I know the month of October is when my social media accounts get a lot of followers because oh, it's spooky season and must-follow horror movies. Oh, um, to all the newcomers, thank you. Uh, to all those who have been around since the beginning, thank you. I give a lot of thanks. You guys make it worth it. And yeah, that's that. I've talked a lot, so I'm probably just going to shut up. (laughs) Let you go back to your better lives. But thank you for tuning in. As always, you know where you can find the show. The show is on many podcast streaming apps. Um, And I'm not going to lie. I've kind of poked around to see where its hotspots are it seems to be podcast addict uh, pod bean has a couple followers for the show google apple it's kind of cool i'm i'm kind of happy about that i appreciate it in terms of social media done. oh my god facebook is down my life is over as soon as it comes back i'm going to tell you how great it was without you I gotta really stop being a sarcastic asshole, but anyways (laughs) social media, where you can find the show, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter you know the deal so I'll announce the next week's episode next movie that will be the featured review the week week of next week and I'll do it like this okay, because it's going to be the same producer and same starring actor, so I don't I I don't want to just be like, oh, movie with Carl Lemley Jr. and Boris Karloff because I already talked about them this week, so we'll be talking about them next week. But um, I'll do it this way, okay? So to announce the next episode, I'm going to refer to the Monster Squad. All right, not the re- not the review I did for the movie, but the movie itself. The movie was you know those kids versus Universal Studio monster movies, and so I thought, hey, how I'll do it? I'll do it like this. There's a scene in the Monster Squad involving the character of Eugene. Now you remember Eugene, he was a little kid. They all were kids, but he was the little one. And there's that scene in the movie when he's supposed to be going to sleep and he's afraid to go to sleep. Why? Because there's a certain monster hiding in his closet. Do you remember the monster? Okay, five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. That was some fast seconds, so I'll ramble a little bit. Okay, so next week's episode is The Mummy i going to do The Mummy next. That will be next week's episode. That's pretty much it for me. I'm done. I'm out of here. You need to shut the fuck up. Hey, lick my plate, you dog dick. Now, I don't give a bag of dicks what kinky shit you're into. Just be into it Quietly.